Hi, everyone. Welcome to the very fifth episode of the Class Stars podcast. My name is Moshe Fried, and today I want to share with you some things that really caught me by surprise after working with teachers and students for a few years. The big question is, how do teachers like us, who are being pulled in so many directions, with so many demands and so much to do, how do we make sure that we not only get through our lesson as planned, but also make sure that every child is noticed every day, and that each one gets the attention they need to succeed? That is the question, and the Class Stars podcast is here to give you the answer. Here is your host, Moshe Freed. Certain things can be easily reverse engineered. That means you look at the finished product and take it apart and see how it was put together in the first place. A good example of this is a Lego project. Each brick has a place, and some of them are quite sophisticated. Other things are not so easy, like a cake. An expert baker might be able to taste the cake and know what ingredients are inside, but I think it would be an amazing feat if someone can taste it, reverse engineer it, and then bake it. Similarly, when you've spent a long time developing a thought, sometimes you look back at how the thought developed, like a Lego project, and you can reverse engineer it. But other times it's hard to remember how the thought developed, and it's like trying to reverse engineer a cake. Does this make sense? Well, what I do know was that for a few years I was doing a lot of reading, and many of the books that I read got me really excited and gave me very interesting perspective. For example, I read a book called The Innovator's Dilemma by Clay Christensen. It's not an education book, it's a business book. And I read it because it was referenced in the biography of Steve Jobs. And although Steve Jobs is a controversial figure, one thing is for sure. If he's fascinated by someone, that person is worth looking into. Getting back to Clay Christensen, his introduction to the book just blew me away. He writes that this book is about failures of once once successful companies. He stresses that it's not about the failure of simply any company, but of good companies the kinds that many managers have admired and tried to emulate, the companies known for their abilities to innovate and execute. He goes on, but his point is that we can easily write off failing companies as being mismanaged or making foolish mistakes, in other words, being bad. What he's curious about is how do smart or good people fail? And this got me thinking about education and the work I was doing. We often attribute the failure or lack of success to some kind of problem, Either there's something wrong with the child, or the teacher, or the system, or the family, or whatever. What if that's not the problem? What if we ask ourselves, how do good people struggle? How do good teachers have a hard time? How do good students struggle? That is what Clay Christensen sets out to explore, and that was thrilling for me. Honestly, I wasn't really interested in the business aspect, but his perspective was so fresh and interesting to me, I almost obsessively read his book and watched all of his YouTube videos. And he turned out to be a remarkable person as well. He tells this great story about sticking to your values and that if you do, and that if you do, people will respect you for it. He tells about how when he first came out of college, he had gotten a job with a hotshot consulting firm. It was a very prestigious job. And one day his supervisor came into his office and explained that the team needs to come in on Sunday because there's an important job with a big client. The entire team was going to come in and he needed to be there. Clay, in his calm demeanor, told his supervisor that he has a problem. Before he took this job, he made a commitment to God that Sundays were for church. He can't come in on Sundays. The supervisor was furious. This was a big client and there was a deadline. He told Clay that he needs to decide which is more important to him. 
Clay calmly replied that he already decided. The supervisor said that if he wants to work here, he needs to get with the program. And Clay's response was, well, then I guess I can't work here. The entire time he stayed calm and the supervisor stormed out of the room and slammed the door behind him. About two hours later, the supervisor came back with a big smile on his face and said, Clay, we rescheduled the meeting for Saturday, 3 p.m., and everyone's on board with it, so we'll see you on Saturday. Clay calmly replied, um, I have a problem. You see, I made a commitment to my wife that Saturdays are for the family. I can't come in on Saturdays. If the supervisor hadn't lost it the first time, this time he went into an expletive-laden frenzy. He stormed out and slammed the door even harder. About an hour later, the supervisor came in and shyly asked, By any chance, do you come in on Fridays? His point was that if you're sincere and consistent, people will respect you for the values. I just love that story. Anyway, getting back to the subject of the book, without getting into the nitty-gritty, the idea is that sometimes doing the right thing can actually drive a company to failure. I was thinking about whether there would be some application of this theory to education. What I really liked was the idea of not blaming anyone for a child's struggle. Maybe it isn't someone's fault all the time. Maybe the teacher is doing the right thing, or the parents are doing the right thing. And not only that, but doing the right thing is what's actually keeping the struggling student from succeeding. It's all too often that when a child struggles, a finger is pointed and someone is blamed. The problem is that there's so many critical components that it's easy for each person to find someone to blame. I wanted to look at the situations where children were struggling and think, if this child is a good kid and the teacher is a good teacher, why isn't this working out? I also realized that teachers have a skill set that allows them to work well with children. They hone that skill in their training and experience. The problem is that the skill set doesn't necessarily translate into dealing with parents. No teacher goes into education because they love working with parents. Many teachers panic at the thought of dealing with parents. Forget about when you're dealing with influential parents. Interestingly enough, the same exact thing is found with parents. Parents are often afraid to start with teachers. I've had so many conversations with teachers who talk tough about how these parents need to do this or that, and they'll get them down to the school and all that. And then the same thing from the parents. The teacher thinks this, the teacher thinks that. I'll go down and I'll tell them. Everyone talks a tough game until we all sit around the table and suddenly everyone is very timid. Anyway, I digress. When a child struggles, it's easy for each side to blame the other. And of course, my role, I would always try to bridge that gap, but it's not easy. I remember working with parents whose child was struggling with ADHD and the school was trying desperately to work with this child, but they just didn't seem to have the resources to do it. I vividly remember talking to an outraged dad on the phone, and dad told me that he had spoke, spoken with some local politician who advised him to sue the school for not providing the resources that his son was entitled to. I asked dad if the politician had spoken with the school or he was if he was just offering one-sided advice. Of course, the politician hadn't spoken with the school, and I explained to dad that it was not a lack of effort on the part of the school and that suing the school would probably not improve his son's situation there. We needed to form an alliance and stop blaming each other. But getting back to Christensen, it would be very refreshing to look at the situation in a non-confrontational, non-combative way. I began looking at these situations, trying to see if there was a pattern that was not as obvious, rather than looking for someone to blame. Let's take as a given that we're all good and capable people trying to help. Why are we struggling? 
I came across some interesting literature, and then I noticed a few interesting things. When I was in graduate school, my supervisor suggested that I read a book called The Heart and Soul of Change by Mark Hubble, Barry Duncan, and Scott Miller. The idea of this book is while there are many different modes of therapy, what most contributed to helping people change were the common factors that are found throughout all the different modes of therapy. Their research attributed most of the change to the client or the student's determination to change. This means that the biggest factor in helping a person improve is that the person herself wants to improve. You'll have a hard time helping someone improve if they don't want to. They attribute 40% of what helps a person change to that. The next component was, surprise, surprise, the relationship between the client or student and helper, which could be a therapist or obviously a teacher. That, they claim, contributes to 30% of what helps a person improve. The actual mode of therapy and placebo contributes to change as well, and each of those two got 15% of what helps a person change. Of course, what I do after I read a book, like I said before, is to geek out on YouTube and watch all of their lectures and presentations. So I had heard a seminar from one of these authors, I can't remember which one, but he was talking about the therapy environment and he was saying that effective therapists should outright ask their clients for feedback on the relationship. He explained that there's no way for you to know if your client feels that you have a solid therapeutic relationship unless you ask. And since the relationship between the therapist and the client is so important, it's worthwhile to check in and actually ask, what do you think about our relationship? Of course, I was always asking kids about how they felt about their teachers. And I knew when they felt that their teacher was kind and understanding and when they felt their teachers didn't care or worse. However, the teachers never knew that the students felt this way. Almost all the teachers that I spoke to made the assumption that they don't need to pay attention to this kind. Uh, you know, they don't need to pay attention to this stuff, you know, the student's relationship with them. Some teachers intuitively did things to develop a good relationship, but it was really not getting the, the kind of focus that it seemed to deserve. The goals are always on practical, measurable tasks, learning the material, behaving properly, etc. The next question was, now what? We are assuming that the teachers are all good and trying to do the right thing, but, they did, but that they don't make as their official goal to establish good relationships with each and every one of their kids. Would it help to reorient the teachers towards prioritizing their relationship or more precisely, their students' relationship with them? And an even more basic question was, can this even be done? It would be a while before I would start connecting the dots. But if you enjoyed this, subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. See you next time. Thank you so much for tuning into the Class Stars podcast. To learn more about our vision for education, subscribe to us, visit our website, take our free training, sign up for the newsletter, and follow us on social media. Join the revolution in education and become a Class Stars today, empowering educators one episode at a time.